0: Design Matters will be back in a few weeks with new episodes. In the meantime, we wanted to replay this interview from pre-pandemic times, October of 2019.
1: My teacher, Marilyn, taught me this amazing thing. She did it with one sentence. We were looking at a drawing that I did, and I said, I don't really like this drawing. I don't, I don't even know how I feel about it. I don't think I like it. And she paused and she went, it's none of your business. That was the fulcrum. That's the crucial moment of my entire career, my entire career as an artist, was that what she gave me in that one little sentence, it's none of your business.
0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. On this episode, cartoonist Linda Berry talks about learning how to draw and the damaging effects of one's own
1: opinion. That idea of liking a drawing or not liking a drawing how you can do terrible damage just by, I don't like it or I do. Here's Debbie, first with a quick request, then her interview with Linda Barry.
0: I love making design matters and I'm always trying to make it better. One way to do that is to hear a little bit about you. If you have a few minutes, I'd be so grateful if you took a short survey about how you feel about the show at surveynerds.com designmatters. That's surveynerds.com designmatters. Thank you so much. For nearly three decades, Ernie Pook's comic could be found in alternative weekly newspapers across the country. With clear block lettering and kind of hairy, pimply drawings, Linda Barry chronicled the everyday adventures of a boy, Ernie Pook, and a girl, Marlies Mullen. Comics have never been the same. Her books have also been extraordinarily influential. Her first illustrated novel, The Good Times Are Killing Me, came out in 1988, and her latest, Making Comics, was just released. She's a professor of interdisciplinary creativity at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and oh yes... She very recently won a MacArthur Fellowship, so I guess it's official. Linda Barry is a genius. Linda, welcome to Design Matters. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> First of all, congratulations on your spectacular, much deserved MacArthur <laughs> reward. How are you feeling about it?
1: I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm still sort of uh, still sort of reeling about it, but I'm, I'm delighted.
0: Now, Linda, I know that you're notoriously difficult to reach. How did they get in contact with you?
1: (laughs) You know, I actually hung up on them seven times. What? Yeah, because I thought it was a robocall. This number kept calling, and then I started doing that really obnoxious thing, which is answering and hanging up, just so I would just try to discourage whoever it was. And then I just uh, turned my phone off. And then through other means, somebody told me somebody really needed me to call them, and so I called them, and um, that's how I found out was I called them. And it was because the person who wanted me to call them was named Marlis. So I thought it was about my comic strip, Marlies. It was Marlies, um, but I thought, oh, it's somebody. You know, that's a rare name, and often somebody wants to tell me I'm named that too, and I go, oh, yay! <laughs> wow, that's, <laughs> so I, that's kind what of I, That's what I thought it was going to be. Was going to be an oh yay, and uh, it was a it was an oh yay. <laughs> I can't. I mean, <laughs> of a different of a different sort.
0: You had no idea. No,
1: no, no, <laughs> <laughs> like. No.
0: (laughs) And how do you think it's going to change your life, if at all?
1: Well, the first thing I thought about was that I was really going to take all the stuff that was stressing me out, about teaching in particular, um, and keep the part that I love, which is I love working with my students, and I love doing um, this research. And the research that I'm the most interested in is working with human beings for whom – Um, Writing and drawing haven't split yet, and they happen to be four years old. Um, On the campus at the university, we have four pre-K schools, and there's one that I've become very attached to. And so I'm going to be able to really work deeply with these four-year-olds, not as somebody who is there to teach or even encourage, but I believe that drawing with people that age has a mutual benefit that's profound. And I've seen it with my students that I started a program because I was so confused about why grad students were so miserable. Um, in and, general? In or? general, and particularly um, why that's acceptable to the academy and why it's an acceptable state for a grad student to be in. I don't understand it. I mean, I feel like we should be doing everything we can to make their lives comfortable because they're the people that are discovering things. And so I, tr- I started a program Um, along with a grad student I worked with named Ebony Flowers. I I told my grad students that I was going to find co-researchers for them to work on their dissertations or their um, thesis, and um, I didn't tell them that the co-researchers were four years old. And that's what we did. We set up a program so that my students met with um, four-year-olds for two and a half hours once a week to work on their dissertations. Because I feel like in grad school, what happens is your focus becomes laser-sharp And anything that isn't getting you toward whatever your goal is seems to be extraneous. But discovery doesn't work that way. And so I wanted them to to be with uh, human beings that had this super open frame of mind. And um, after that, I started to realize that that applied to me too. And that my time with them always resulted in some discovery in my own work. Yeah, that's what I get to do. I get to be crawl on the floor with four-year-olds.
0: You write in your new book, which I want to talk to you about in more depth in a little bit, but in regard to this specific topic— one reflection that astounded me um, is you state that if drawing or singing or dancing and things of that nature are absent in children, we worry about them. Yes. Not so for adults. Right. So this this separation of writing and drawing, how do we encourage that to continue longer than four or five years old in a person? How does that become a lifelong
1: quest It stays with us naturally if the environment around us takes part in it. Um, You know, I work with kids as much as I can, and oftentimes there are parents around. And what's amazing to me is how if uh, I'm doing a drawing jam with kids and parents, the parents have three modes around their child that's drawing. I I can rarely get a parent to draw with us. It's very rare that I can do that. And is it because they're afraid they're not going to do a good job? Oh, they're so afraid. And not only that, when you ask them, do you want to draw, the first thing they do is they cross their arms and hide their hands. It's as if their hands might accidentally start drawing. And so they actually have to tuck them away in case the hands, because I do think the hands want to. So the things that parents do, they either instruct They'll tell, you know, if you're drawing a lion, you got to remember if it's a male lion, it has all this hair around its head. Or they encourage, that's fantastic, look at that, that's fantastic. Or they're on their phone. And there's actually, those are the three modes. And their fear of drawing is so profound that it's like... When somebody suddenly has a a bodily fluid that escapes that they can't control and then they just are horrified and try to, you know, like if your nose started bleeding or something, it's that kind of horror and that urge to destroy it. So what I'm curious about is why that horror exists. So I've also done a whole lot of work with adults um, to get them to draw and to uh, find drawing exercises that aren't intimidating or that somehow bypass. They're, they happen too fast for people that fear to step in. And when I say working with kids, I feel like I'm also working with kids when I'm working with adults because I'm working with the part of them that gave up on drawing at about the age of eight when they realized they couldn't draw a nose. And for most people, nose or hands, age of eight, it's over. That's I'm washed up. It's over. It's, and they are living with the decision they made about themselves at the age of eight or nine.
0: Well, there's the notion of being afraid of doing anything that we don't think we're going to be good at. Yeah. But you can't get good at something until you start doing it. And so I think a lot of us live in this paralysis of wanting to do something, but also being ashamed of not being able to do it well and being humiliated yeah.
1: in the process of, of doing it. And then in there, the thing, the thing that's lost is you don't even have to be able to do it well. Um, you don't have to be able to do it well. It's sort of like thinking, and in, in particularly with the arts, it's sort of like thinking that unless you can ride a bike like Lance Armstrong, you shouldn't ride a bike. Well, not even Lance Armstrong could ride a bike like Lance Armstrong, right? In the <laughs> exactly, um, exactly, you know, or a kind of thing like say you go on a on a bike ride and you have a good bike ride, and then you come back and you feel pretty good about it. That should just be it. But say after you feel pretty good at it, those the guys in the Google car show up and they knock on the door and they say you went on a bike ride and you go yeah and they say how do you think it went? I think it went pretty well. Let's look at the tape. Yeah, you know what I mean there's this thing where the actual uh, experience of drawing is an experience, but then they treat the drawing like it's a thing and and a thing to be judged or it's not even judging it. It's It's so different, and that's what I love about comics because comics leap right over that problem of representational. I mean, you wouldn't want Charlie Brown with a hyper-realistic nose or hands. It'd be pretty horrifying. They leap right over that problem, and all those shapes that are preserved by um, our ability to write the alphabet and um, our beautiful um, numerals, they're the most beautiful shapes, those shapes can allow you to make comics, satisfying comics.
0: Yeah, I... We'll never forget the first time Chip Kidd showed me the cover of the Peanuts book that he edited because it was just a close-up of Charlie Brown's eyes. So it looked like a C, a period, a period, and a C. And I didn't understand what I was looking at. And then as soon as I realized it, of course, you can never unsee that. It becomes so clear. And it was so genius, those gestures of everything that Charlie Brown is in just those little scratches of recollection.
1: And you just did it. You said a C, a period, a period, and a C. Like when my four-year-olds say, I, I'll tell them, I often talk to them about difficulties my students have. I go to them with my problems. And I say, well, for instance, they're, they're scared of drawing hands. And this kid goes, it's, hands are easy. It's a snowball. Thumb, 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 thumb. Or um ears, that's another thing. And they'll say the letter C with a five in it. So but <laughs> but they're but they're describing these shapes. You can already see it in your head. We're discussing something right. when we say those things. So that's the stuff I'm the most fascinated with and I've seen over and over again and when we look at kids' drawings and they have this enormous charm that disappears. Um, adults who quit drawing also have drawings, can make drawings with enormous charm if you can just get the paper away from them as fast as possible so they can't do anything to it. So you're
0: three-minute drawing exercises. Yeah,
1: it's three-minute and take it away.
0: I am not sure if it's in making comics or in syllabus where you redraw a child's drawing Mm -hmm. and you can see the charm in the child's drawing and your representation of that drawing that's there's like a certain
1: soul that's not quite there it doesn't make it and partly it's because a kid's drawing isn't line so if i'm copying it i'm copying the line the kid's drawing is gesture it's the natural human movement and another place that we see that is in the sciences if you watch um science i've at the university, I get to work with scientists to watch their whiteboard, how they move their hands on the whiteboard when they're thinking. It's astonishing. I mean, the parallels between how their hands look and how their drawings look and uh, four-year-olds is, is amazing. It, it would make the physicists just cry to show that they, they it looks just like four-year-olds. But the thing that I've come to realize is what if that's what a line looks like? Not just when you're getting an idea, but that the line itself is giving you an idea. And I think that that's the part people don't remember or suspect about drawing. That drawing can go not just from your head to the page, but definitely from the page up your hand and into your head. And that's the kind of drawing that kids are doing. They're drawing and then seeing what it is they're drawing. I had this kid... um, uh, Aiden, I was sitting next to him, and all of a sudden he goes, "I just drew Batman. I did not know that I know how to draw Batman." And it was this astonishing drawing of Batman, full body, cape, everything. And then I saw him the next week. I came in, say, "Aiden, you want to draw Batman?" He goes, "Yeah, I don't draw Batman anymore." Well, because uh, he gave up the pen. Well, he had already gone through the whole Batman phase in one one week. I mean, because they're at a whole, they're at some kind of super time. They're in a whole other time. Yeah, that's where it's at.
0: Linda, what is your first creative memory?
1: Oh, it's uh, it's the letter O. It was, um, we were studying the alphabet in uh, first grade, and we were on the letter O. And I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, um, but I drew an orange grove. I had never seen one, but I just loved this. So I drew an orange grove with a stream going down the middle of it. um, So the perspective was wonky, right? And then I wrote something about oranges in the letter O. And I was a very strange kid, kind of a – I had a lot of – you'd call me emotional problems. But that drawing um, made a couple girls in the class who were normally not very nice to me be really interested And they wanted me to draw them each uh, version of that drawing. And it was the first time I saw a drawing as some kind of communication, a communication that was much different than just looking at somebody and talking to them and realizing that I could make drawings and communicate with other people in a way that I couldn't in my normal life. You
0: could reach them.
1: Yeah, something. I could do something. Yeah, so that was, it was the letter O. (laughs)
0: Now, you've said that comics were the reason you learned to read. Yeah. And that when you were very young, you picked the five comic strips you decided you were going to read for the rest of your life. Yeah, when I
1: was going to be able to read. Because I had just been introduced to this idea of the rest of my life. And I remember the first thing I did was when I was thinking about it, we were passing a fence. And I looked at this fence and I thought, I'm going to remember that fence for the rest of my life. And (laughs) And I have. I have ever since. I must have been about four but I remember uh, picking out those comics, and then also, you know, I grew up in a difficult family, and we happened to have little scissors around the house—teeny, like tiny cuticle scissors—and I used—and I didn't have a lot of toys, so I used to cut out the little characters from the comics, the little black and white characters, and those those were my toys. And they were—my um, mom was kind of had a lot of disturbances and would take stuff away from you. So what I loved about them is they were. You could hide them. They were really easy to hide. You could hide little paper things. And the thing that I used to do that would crack me up, my mom worked in a hospital. She was a janitor. I ended up at at a janitor at the same hospital. But she'd always bring home magazines, right? So in um, like Family Circle magazine or Women's Day, there'd be pictures of food that you could cook. I also loved to look at pictures of food, and I'd put little slits in them, and then I'd have, like, Snuffy Smith or Charlie Brown coming out of those slits out of, like, the lasagna. You're making collages. And I I would laugh my ass off. I thought it was the funniest thing in the world was to be able to sink them into spaghetti. But, yeah, so those were my toys. I became really attached to comics, not in the nerd way that people do, where you really know everything about the author and you know everything about – not that way. It was the actual characters themselves.
0: So work with the five. I know one was Dondi.
1: One was Dondi. One was Family Circus. Yeah, we had to course. talk about Family Circus. Um, Brenda Starr, um, Snuffy Smith, and I'm trying to think. It wasn't the other one. Wasn't Peanuts. It was it Mary Worth. I think it might have been Mary Worth. It was a soap opera thing. Because I couldn't read yet, but I could tell that stuff was going on. People were really upset all the time. There was one with a lot of ladies crying. Do
0: you remember the comic Apartment 3G? Yes.
1: That was same, that was in the same. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, Apartment 3G. Yeah, that
0: I loved. It was so sophisticated. Yeah.
1: I didn't even know what an apartment was, you know. <laughs> but it, but you could tell the, the adults were having all kinds of, yeah. mostly the women yeah. were having all kinds of trouble. Absolutely. It was very Valley of the Dolls without
0: the drugs. Yeah.
1: I still look at comics that are in a language I don't know. So um, there's a great cartoonist named Lot, L-A-A-T, from Malaysia. And um, I have some of his comics that are in Malaysian and um, that I translate just through Google Translate. First, I read them thinking what I think this might be. And then I love translating them and seeing what, according to Google Translate, what they might be saying.
0: I was obsessed with Brenda Starr. Oh, yeah. I got Newsday, so I lived from sixth grade to 12th grade on Long Island, and Mm -hmm. that's when I discovered we got the the Newsday delivered every day. And I was so obsessed with Brenda Starr that I wanted to find out as much as I could about the cartoonist. And the cartoonist's name was Dale Messick. Yeah. And I didn't know if Dale Messick was a man or a woman, and I needed to know. And Newsday had this Q&A section. You can write in letters uh-huh. because it was the 70s, and that uh-huh. was the only way. And I wrote, is Dale Messick a man or a woman? And they printed it and told me that she was a woman. She was one of the very one of the rare. First, yeah. And I
1: think that uh, using the name Dale wasn't an accident, no. you know? Yeah, um, I was obsessed with Brenda Starr too when I decided... That I was going to read that strip forever. Um, she was about to marry the wolfman or some kind of wolfman guy. Not Basil St. John. No, not Basil St. John, who's come with the black orchid syrup. Yeah. No, no, no. It was actually like looked like the wolfman. I don't know what happened to it because I was too I was too young. I'll
0: look because I've been collecting the strips. Have I find you? them on eBay and people collect it like they have a year, mm-hmm. a whole year of strips
1: mm-hmm. and I get them. And it's yeah. amazing
0: and they're all cut out and they're perfect.
1: She was so pretty and she was a redhead and she had that kind of, you know, how uh, bail, yeah the sparkle eyes. Yeah.
0: I I, I lived in that strip. That strip saved me, I think. It really did. It showed me that there was another way somebody could live.
1: Yeah. She was a blast. Brenda Starr. Go, Brenda. Two R's. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, You've written about how you grew up in a troubled household. You just referenced it. And you stated that you didn't have books in the house, but you had the Daily Paper. And you remember picking out Family Circus before you could really read. And there was something about life on the other side of that circle that looked pretty good. That
1: really still looks good to me.
0: And for kids like you, there was a map and a compass hidden in Family Circus. The parents in that comic strip really loved their children. Their home was stable. Family Circus was your wished-for family.
1: Yeah. But, you know, I think that what's amazing about comics in general, but also the world... You know, right now it's really important to try to find out what's amazing about the world, right? I think it's amazing that human beings may be born into a family where it's just not the right place or there isn't a lot of love or it's a lot of difficulty, but you're also born into this world that is jam-packed with characters. I mean, characters that are just waiting for you. And I think it's astonishing that no one teaches little kids how to become attached to the characters they need. Nobody teaches us how to do that, just like no one taught us how to turn a piece of cloth into a blankie that will allow us to sleep that night. We have a natural ability to to love characters, yeah. to be able they're to transitional use them. objects. Yeah, but the idea that we're born into this world that are they're full. One of the things I love to ask my students is I say, well, you guys know who Scrooge is? And they go, yeah. And I say, so Scrooge was here before you were born? Scrooge is going to be here after you die where is Scrooge? And they go, what do you mean? I go, "Well, where is he? I said, I know he's with Spider-Man and Medusa and Odysseus and, you know, know, Brenda Starr, but where are they? And they look at me and I say, well, let's put it this way. What would it take to get rid of them? And suddenly you realize that there is this world that is mighty and has a lot of strength and to be born into this world where I didn't have that stuff in my family, but I was born into a family of characters, and um, Family Circus was that for me. And you know, uh, at a certain point, I realized it was an uncool strip, and it didn't matter to me at all. I loved being able to look through that little circle and see this happy life, and then um one day I got to meet Jeff Keane. And you know that thing that you always hear that when you see beautiful art you burst into tears? Like I used to try, like I'd go to galleries or I'd be in museums and I'd just try to just like bust out one tear at least, <laughs> you know, cuz it's beautiful or a uh, uh, proof of beauty. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but when I met Jeff Keane, um Bill Keane used to draw the strip, Jeff now takes does it um I just, I did. I burst into tears, and it wasn't beautiful at all. It was like snot and shaking and me coming toward him um, and him backing away because, like, what's going on here? It was at a National Cartoonist Society event, and um, the joke of the whole conference got to be to just have him, move him within my line of sight because I couldn't stop crying. Um, I still, even now when I'm talking about it, I tear up. And I think it's because when I... Touched his hand when we shook hands. I, I, I was on the other side of that circle. Right. Like, how the hell can that happen? And, and then I realized it happened because I drew a picture. It's crazy. It's so much better than I thought it would be. Life is so much better than I thought it would be.
0: How did you feel when you showed up one day in that circle
1: that he drew you? <laughs> it was <as> so great,
0: <laughs> Jeff's little friend. Yeah. I love and I love the way he wrote it to Dad. This is my new friend, Linda. She's not a girl, but she's going to be my best friend. Oh no, no, I she's, no, she's, a, she's not a boy, but no, she's, she's
1: going to be my best friend, even though the, she's a girl. Right? Yeah. Which I thought, well, go ahead, uh, Jeff. And I looked like I had always been there. Always. It's such a great. It was such a beautiful, beautiful thing to have happen. Unbelievable.
0: Your parents got divorced when you were 12. Mm-hmm. You dropped acid for the first time when you were 12. Yeah. You changed your name from Linda with an i to Linda with a y.
1: I saw Hair when I was 12.
0: Oh, well, let's talk about
1: Hair for a second. Which was the a, a life-changing.
0: I understand that you want a
1: copy of the
0: soundtrack to Hair in a radio contest.
1: I was really fast at being like be the third caller.
0: I did um, that once too. My prize was a dinner at a Chinese restaurant. Did you go? I I wanted my my mother and my stepfather to go. Uh And then they had a big fight and didn't go. And so, yeah, I never actually redeemed the prize. But I remember sitting in the doctor's office, listening to the radio with my mother. She was going in for an appointment and there was this contest and I immediately got a postcard and put it in the mail and I won. And then they didn't go.
1: But (laughs) you were somebody who submitted things um, like you had an awareness a, as a little kid that there was this other world that you could reach like through postcards and writing. I think I was
0: just desperate, so desperate to get out. I was looking for any way. <laughs> well,
1: but, but that to me was a big deal when I realized that. When they'd say send in yeah. this, they meant me. You know what I mean? I took I took that stuff. Seriously. I, I took it seriously, and it was so exciting. Even if it, there was no chance in hell, you know that um, this postcard was going to get picked. I loved this going to the mailbox and feeling like I was starting to be part of this other world, and it had to do with paper. And writing and a stamp, if you can get a stamp. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like you believed in the image world at a very young age and began to rely on it. Absolutely. That's the stuff. I mean, I'm crying while I'm talking to you and I'm just kind of because that's just the way I am. But that's what I'm talking about is like there is this world we're born into. And then those of us who end up as artists in one way or another, um, as adults, uh, bind to that world early on. Um, And I think that that's, you know, I teach in the art department at the university, but I think it's one of the things that sets me a little bit apart from the other faculty is that I really am tied to this other kind of image world, to the comics world, and not into uh, sort of contemporary ideas about art. I'm just not there. I'm elsewhere. I have this. Uh, it's not that I'm in, in the past. I'm really interested in the nuts and bolts of how people really use images and how they've used them their whole lives. I think about image, the image world as being something like uh, an immune system. I think that's what it might be. It's like an, or external organs. We have internal organs. But I do think that this, this thing of being born into a world that's full of characters Um, is something to think about and and, uh, it's something I want to explore a little bit more. And with those four-year-olds, like to see being with people who've been on Earth only for four years but who can talk.
0: um, Their imaginations are so vivid.
1: Yeah. But it's even not – I mean we call it imagination. um, But for them it's just their way of being. Right. You know? Again, at what point does the way of being suddenly – we have to call it imagination. It's not imagination for them.
0: No, it's the way of being. Yeah, and that's what separates us from every other species on this planet, yeah. this ability. Yeah. How did Hair change your life?
1: Um, well, I won, I won the soundtrack, and it was the first album that was mine, mine, you know, and I memorized it, and then um, I found out Hair was coming to Seattle. So, you know, it had been playing for a long time by the time it kind of wiggled over to, to Seattle. And I remember skipping school. I remember buying a ticket, and uh, I, I just had this feeling. I said to myself that you are not – when I left the house, you are not going to be the same person when you come back. And uh, that's exactly what happened. How did it change you? It filled me with this feeling of there was this place to go. And there were these people waiting. I mean, it was hair though, you know, but for a seventh grader, like it let me know that there was an age of Aquarius and there was this other way of being in the world. Let the sunshine in. Let the sunshine in. (laughs) I mean, that's, I mean, it was really like the opposite of depression, you know, And, um, and I did feel changed. And I was a weird kid. I didn't really have my people, you know what I mean? So that's what that felt, and I feel like, the, the, again, the image world has always been the place where I've found um, everybody. And the cool thing is now that I'm part of the image world, I mean my work is part of the image world, all the people that I've met because of it. So it's a slow start, I think, for artists. You can have a slow start in life and have a difficulty in the beginning, and then something happens and it gets better.
0: Another defining moment when you were 12 was the discovery of the work of cartoonist R. Crumb. Oh, yeah. How did you come upon his work?
1: I can remember I was in row three in math class. I think it was seventh grade. And this kid had ZAP number zero next to me, and I asked if I could see it. And I've talked to several people about this issue of of ZAP. But I remember looking at it and opening – just looking at a few pages and then not giving the comic back to the guy, just convincing him to loan it to me overnight, finding out where he got it and going to this head shop. I didn't know what that was either. But there was something about the drawing and – it was that he was drawing really ordinary people in this sort of extraordinary way. There were all this, there was all this sex stuff in it and crazy stuff, the R. Crumb stuff. That wasn't the stuff that was interesting to me. What was interesting to me was like in a store, he'd have a scene that was in a store, and it was just normal people on the street or in a store. But the way he drew the people was so extraordinary, and so I started copying him right away. Which is also another way that cartoonists learn is they learn by copying, which has gotten a bad name, copying. You know, when I have my students copy other people's work, they're go- they always say, is this all right? It's like, what's going to happen? You know, if you copy someone's work, it's not like somebody's going to come in with a Geiger counter and go, sorry, <laughs> you can't do this. So uh, it was his work. It was the way he saw the world. And saw the ordinary parts of the world, you know, the way he'd draw a room and include like cracks in the ceiling or the string pull from the, the light or the way people sort of are shaped and the way they are dressed. It's funny because the sex stuff and uh, the other stuff that he's sort of known for was so pale to me compared to this, the ordinary world that he portrayed.
0: You mentioned working as janitor in a hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, You did that when you were 16. You worked as a janitor. For four
1: years, from 16 till 20.
0: And I know that at one point growing up, you thought about becoming a flight attendant or a veterinarian. What were you imagining you were going to do at that
1: point in your life? I really wanted to teach, teach or be a veterinarian. I think The Flight Attendant was only because I read Coffee, Tea, or Me, (laughs) Um, which was the the book going around the seventh grade at the time. But uh, I wanted to teach because I loved my teachers and I loved school. I loved school, but I was—and I still am kind of a bad speller, so I thought there was no way I could be a teacher because I wasn't a good speller. I knew I liked drawing. Mainly all I wanted to do was get to college. I really wanted to go to school and— you know, if I had known what grad school was, I don't know how I m- made it through college with. Because I went to a hippie's college, I didn't know anything about grad school. But had I known, I probably would have tried really hard to get into grad school. Yeah, I, didn't I regret know, that too. I didn't having... know you didn't go to grad school I either. Did not know. You know what? I don't regret it at all now because I had such a good teacher, Marilyn Frasca, at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. I had such a good teacher, and I realize now she had us working like we were in grad school. We worked in series. We worked, like, relentlessly. And so by the time I graduated, I knew how to work, and I knew how to sustain a practice of working. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do, and all I needed was to find a way to support that uh, desire. So any little job I could have helped me do that, and that's how I looked at it, versus people trying to get a job doing the thing they love right away. That's really difficult and also not necessarily a good idea because if you're doing that, you're usually under somebody who's starting to tell you how to do it. And that can jam your signals so bad in a way that can almost maim you. I don't think it's, it's, I think it's more than harm. I think it can be irreversible, some of it.
0: I know that Marilyn Frasca made a huge impact to you and taught you about the idea of the image with a capital I. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? I found that really fascinating.
1: Well, she asked me when I was 19 to think about this question, what is an image? And I thought to myself, um, it was a picture. I thought that that's what she meant. It's just a picture. But now I see it as this entire other world, a whole other way of being. For example, coming here on the subway, there was a fellow sitting right across from me. Um, He was a tall, very gangly fellow who was out of it. I mean, I don't know if he was junked out or whatever, but he was in this pose that looked exactly like a Picasso painting that I had seen. And so he looked like a junked out dude sitting across from me. And at the same time, he was in this pose that was so arresting that I couldn't keep my eyes from him. So there's the reality of him sitting there. And then there's the image part of him. And this idea that in any situation that you're in, that other view is available to you. And also that it sort of doubles your amount of time on Earth. Say you're sitting on the subway, but you're reading a book. So you're on the subway, but in the image world, you're also in Vietnam in 1968. Like the idea that there's something that can accordion time out for you and also make you uh, be able to fly and turn invisible. (laughs) Because I think that that's exactly what's happening when you're reading another book. You're somewhere, but you're also invisible. And then when you're um, looking at a scene, it's almost like you can fly. So all those little superpowers that we imagined having when we were a little kid are there for us in the image world.
0: You talked about going to a hippie school. I understand there was... Um, you weren't allowed to use the word class. That The word class was uh, yeah, forbidden. Not we, as in caste system, No, but as no, in going
1: to classes. Yeah, to courses. There, were, there were all these... We had to call them seminars, and we had to... So this was in 1978. Um, no, 74, 1974 to 78. So it was experimental education, and they were just trying all kinds of things. Um, and that was one of the ideas. But the most powerful idea about the school at the time, at, about Evergreen at the time, is that you only had one class. But that class took up your whole day. And the th- philosophy was that if you study one thing deeply, you're going to be studying lots of things. That's why it was like grad school in a, little, in a little bit, is that everything you were studying was tied to some central idea.
0: I've read two accounts about how your comics first got published. The first one is that in 1977, you slipped them under one of your classmates' doors, Matt Greening, who was the creator of The Simpsons, mm-hmm. who went to college with him, and you'd hoped that he'd get them to run in the Evergreen State College newspaper. Uh, the second version goes that Matt Greening got your work and submitted it to the paper without asking you, which is true.
1: Neither of those are exactly right. Uh, <laughs> what happened was Matt became the editor of the of the school paper, and he said that he would print any comics that somebody submitted. So what I would do is th- – and I didn't know him, but I thought, oh, right? Really? So I was <laughs> making the most kind of horrific comics, and those were the ones that I was slipping under the door to the newspaper office.
0: And what does horrific mean?
1: <laughs> uh, a picture of a father reading the newspaper and a little girl trying to show him what she learned at school uh, during the day. He's not paying attention, but she learned how to sever her own arms and legs. Or um, there was a lot of limb severing or an argument between a guy who had no legs and a guy who was a jackass about whose life was worse. <laughs> um, I mean, I just like—and sometimes they were just a really crudely drawn picture of a person. You could barely tell it was a person, and then underneath it would just say, what is wrong with this picture? But no matter what I submitted, he printed. So when that idea that he did it without my knowledge, it wasn't that. It was just that it went under the door, and then it would show up in the paper. And then we ended up becoming really, really good friends. Lifelong friends. Yeah,
0: yeah. So how did you create Ernie Pook?
1: That title came from my little brother um, who was eight years younger than me. One, You know, little kids start naming stuff. You don't know why. So he started naming when he was really little. He named everything Ernie Pook, like um, his socks, uh, the food he was eating. But it would be Ernie Pook the 32nd, Ernie Pook the 422nd. Anyway, when I decided to do a comic and it was going to be in the our little weekly paper in Seattle – I wanted to name it something, so I called it Ernie Pook's Comics just for him, right? And I thought he would crack up because Ernie Pook doesn't really, really exist. That's just the name of the comic. But uh, when it was printed and I showed it to him, I said, look, and he goes, who's Ernie Pook? And he had no memory, no memory (sighs) at all of naming every little thing. And then so that's just what it was called. But there isn't really an Ernie Pook; He doesn't exist. It's difficult to explain why the strip is called that. But it was mainly to please him, and he didn't have any memory of it. And how would you define comique? You know, this was also at a time when comics were either – so there was superhero stuff. There was daily stuff. There was some underground stuff that was the Orkrum stuff. And the so stuff that I was doing and Matt were doing – didn't really have a place. They called it all kinds of stuff. It was called punk art for a while. But I just wanted to call it something that was different. And again, it was more for my brother to to make him um, laugh. And also it's a play on um, how how my relatives say things. You know, the comic. <laughs> so it's a, it's a play on that. So my comic ran for almost 30 years. And uh, the main character, Marlis, So it's Marlis, Arna, Arnold, and uh, and Freddie. They all appeared in one panel, the first panel for a strip that I was going to do that was just about some kids who got sick after going to a parade, ate something and got sick. That was it. And I drew that, and I had no idea that I was going to spend about 30 years with those characters. And one of the things I tell my students is I remember drawing that panel and not particularly liking the drawing. How come? I don't know, you know, you're just in a mood. Like, What terrifies me is how easy it would have been to just throw that away. And had I done that, this idea of like, you know, it was 30 years of a relationship with these characters. I'm still in, in relationship with them. And that idea of liking a drawing or not liking a drawing... Um, how you can do terrible damage just by, I don't like it, or I do. And my teacher, Marilyn, taught me this amazing thing. She did it with one sentence. We were looking at a drawing that I did, and I said, I don't really like this drawing. I don't don't even know how I feel about it. I don't think I like it. And she paused, and she went, it's none of your business. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) What? It's like the drawing's already here. It's none of your business whether you like it or not. And it was the most mind-bending thing anybody had said to me because I thought, you mean there's another way to look at this besides do I like it or not? That was the fulcrum. That's the crucial moment of my entire career. My entire career as an artist was that what she gave me in that one little sentence, it's none of your business.
0: You've said in the same way you don't have to like the way your liver looks for it to be able to function. Mm -hmm. You don't have to like the way your drawings look for
1: them to start to work. Right. Absolutely. This idea that liking or not liking is the essential part of of making something, when I had that taken away, when I finally was able to look at the work and see it as something that had the same right to exist that I did, and that it might have a function that I can't even suspect, you know, a very unsuspected function that is completely camouflaged by liking or not liking. Like one of the things I love to say uh, to show my students is I'll put some little drawing up and I'll say, let's watch that drawing. I say, I love that drawing. That drawing's fantastic. And then I'll go to the other side of it and talk about how awful it is. And then I say, so what physically actually happened to the drawing? It's like nothing. So the drawing is the stronger part, right? And this idea of learning to look at something uh, without like or not like, and it's not even about judging. It's allowing the thing to come forward, allowing the thing to be present. That thing of I like it and I don't like it really diminishes the experience.
0: Linda, we're living in a day and age where everything is judged by being liked. I know.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. We're doomed. <laughs> no. We're, we're not. doomed. We're not.
0: You talk quite a lot about the notion of being able to draw and how drawing and writing were not separated for us when we were first making things in your wonderful new book, Making Comics. As you write on the book plate page, there was a time when drawing and writing were not separated for you. In fact, our ability to write could only come from our willingness and inclination to draw. In the beginning of our writing and reading lives, we drew the letters of our name. The motions each requires hadn't become automatic yet. There was a lot of variability of shape and order and orientation. The letters were characters, and when certain characters got together in a certain order, they spelled your name. Talk about the notion of what it means to be able to draw as a child and how adults can get back to that somehow?
1: There are only a couple things you need. You need space and time. So you need, um, I always just have people work on index cards with flare pens or on copier paper with flare pens. And one of the assignments that I give people that seems like every every person in this world can do um, without freaking out. One is that I'll give you a piece of paper with a, maybe I'll ask you to make a quick scribble on it. You know, I'll count to three. Just make a quick scribble. And maybe I'll tell you to turn it upside down. And I'll give you three minutes to turn that scribble into a monster. Everybody in this world can do that. And there's something about knowing you only have three minutes to do it. For some reason, that makes people very excited. If they had half an hour to do it, they'd be much less excited. But if it's three minutes and I'm counting down, and then you have this little monster, there they are. And then I say, okay, now draw that monster's parents. <laughs> Every person can do it. Which two monsters had to get together to make that one, right? So I have them do that, and they, I give them two minutes for each parent. And then I have them draw that original monster as a toddler with an older sibling. Everybody can do it. So what you're doing is you're working from, from something that's very specific that's using um, an ability that everybody has. And then I show them ways that they can turn that into a comic strip, which makes people very happy. And when you can surprise yourself with just a pen and an index card, and you know that index card, the 3 by 5 is about the same size as your phone. And so there's something about being able to really be in wireless control of this thing and that it surprises them. And it's another – it's their – what my, my friend Kelly Hogan always says, it's blowing your mind with your own mind. Mm. Um, so demonstrating to yourself physically that there's some wonderful feeling that comes from it, that's very much like going on a ride. It's really like going on an amusement park ride because there's something that's a little bit out of your control. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but you know it's only going to last three minutes. You state
0: that your way of teaching comics is not about developing characters. It's about waiting to see who shows up in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. You also detail how you hesitated before agreeing to teach a comics class. What made you finally agree?
1: Well, I knew I could teach writing. And uh, I'd been slowly sort of sneaking drawing into the writing classes. And I started to see what a benefit it was and how excited people got And how it was definitely a more unknown kind of crazy terrain. But because my comic style, I never really did develop a super um, fast comic style or a very accomplished style. I am somebody who if there's a stranger um, who doesn't know my work at all and they find out I'm a cartoonist and they ask me to draw something – and I draw something for them. There's a little, you can see this little look of pity that crosses. And it's sort of like, oh, that's your dream. And you just keep on. Because my, you know, my drawing style is a little bit funky.
0: But you can draw. Yeah. I mean, you can draw Renaissance style if I, you want to. If I
1: want to. Yeah, I, I can. I can. I can. It's always a little stiff, but I can do it. I can draw, draw. But uh, that's not the drawing I'm interested in. I'm interested in the wild, wild. I don't know if it's West or east or north or south, but something wild.
0: Linda, I could talk to you for days on end. I have 10 pages of questions and actually got to about five of them. I want to end the show by just quoting you and then asking one last question. But you end your your new book this way. Everything good in my life came because I drew a picture I hope you will draw a picture soon. I will always want to see it.
1: Oh, yes, it's it's true. It's true. I will always want to see it.
0: And my last question for you is this. I understand that you're fascinated by narcissists who are given a full speed ahead signal. And as a result, you have a profound love for reality television. I do. So does my girlfriend. Um, What are you watching these days?
1: Oh god, I just have been watching Love Island.
0: <laughs> she watches Temptation Island.
1: Yeah, Temptation Island is I think our the American version. Um so the British version is a Love Island. And I don't think that they're necessarily um narcissists these young these young people um you know, I think that they're really being taken advantage of in a certain way. But like the real housewives certainly have this narcissistic, but I am fascinated with narcissists as they would have it. <laughs> <laughs> but mainly I love, I love uh, for uh, Love Island, I just love all the slang, the weird British slang. So the one that I love the most is shapey. I'm getting all shapey. I don't know what that means, getting shapey. I don't know if it means drunk or emotional. I just emotional. could listen to you
0: say that over and I'm over. All
1: Yeah, and it's going to be my new ringtone. Then the other thing they say is, I feel like a tit. He made me feel like a tit. That one, which I think is amazing. So I. he's being such a tit. Um, and then um, mugged. I got mugged off. But I love a shapey tit that got mugged off. That's, yeah. So I do like that. You've just made my life, Linda.
0: (laughs) Linda Barry, thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. And congratulations on your brilliant, brilliant (laughs) new book and your well-deserved MacArthur Genius Award. Oh, thank
1: you. This was a gas. It really was.
0: Oh, thank you. Linda doesn't have a website, but Linda Barry's latest book is Making Comics. And it is amazing. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit and the art director is Emily
1: Wyland.